0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au As you know, we've been working our way through John's Gospel, John Chapter 4, and we've uh, this week we've come to the end of John Chapter 4. And uh, I'm sure you'd agree it's been a fascinating journey through a fascinating chapter of John's Gospel. We've seen Jesus take his ministry beyond the bounds of his own people in Judea and uh, Jerusalem and beyond that into his neighbours, the Samaritans. They're despised Samaritans in the eyes of the Jews for sure, but he took his ministry to the Samaritans. But Jesus, of course, has never been beholden to cultural or ethnic norms. He's come as the saviour of the world, as the Samaritans acknowledge while he's there with them. In fact, he has his first large-scale success in Samaria. Firstly, he reveals who he really is to an outcast woman at the well in the midday heat, Then she promptly rushes back to town to tell all her townsfolk, and they come out in droves to find out what she's so excited about, and they beg Jesus to stay with them. He, of course, obliges and spends two days with them preaching and teaching God's word, and it tells us in John that they believe because of his word. So if you got your Bibles, we'll pick up the story in John chapter 4, verse 45. And Jesus has just left Samaria. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And went on his way. What a different reception Jesus gets when he leaves Samaria and arrives in Galilee and in Cana. Cana, as you'd recall, was the place where he turned the water into wine back at the start of chapter 2. That was the first of seven miracles that John records in his gospel to help us to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing we would have eternal life in his name. It's the purpose that John wrote this whole gospel. In contrast to the Samaritans, those despised half-breeds and heretics who believed because of what Jesus said, the Galileans wouldn't believe unless he performed for them. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, Jesus said to them. Clearly not the sort of reception that Jesus had hoped to get from them. Amongst this crowd, is a man who also wants Jesus to perform a miracle. This man, though, is no commoner. He's a wealthy man. He's an important man. He's a man of status and power. He's a royal official, quite likely working directly for King Herod himself. And this wealthy, important and powerful man travels 30 kilometres up steep hills from Capernaum to see Jesus, the carpenter's son, the itinerant preacher, a man no one had heard of not so long ago. But this man is not there as a curiosity seeker, hoping to be entertained by Jesus. He wants to see a miracle for a much more personal reason. His son is dying. In fact, his son is at the point of death. There's no time to lose. Jesus, you must come with me now. If you don't come now, it will be too late. He's insistent. Our English translations don't bring it out very clearly, but the original Greek tells us that he wouldn't let up. He kept on asking. He kept on pestering Jesus to come and heal his son. If you've ever had a loved one, especially a child, seriously ill or dying, you'd know why he was so insistent. It's one of the most painful things any parent can experience. It's frightening. It's heartbreaking. It's despair-inducing in equal measures. If you've been fortunate to avoid that pain in your life so far, don't hold your breath. It comes to everyone at some point. Pain and loss and grief and death are no respecter of person. They don't care how wealthy you are. They don't care how important you are. They don't care how cautious you are, nor how righteous you are. This man's wealth and his status couldn't protect him from this pain. And we're kidding ourselves if we think it will protect us either. No doubt this man has called in the best doctors to treat his sons. After all, he can afford the best. But every one of them, has been unable to help. And he's desperate. He's desperate. This is his last chance of saving his son. This Jesus who everybody is talking about. This Jesus who seems to have the ability to heal the sick, the blind, the lame. But if he doesn't come now, it'll be too late. Where do you turn when all hope is gone? When all other paths have turned into dead ends? When even the specialists are left without answers. Do you seek out faith healers, quack cures, experimental treatments, special foods? Many do in their desperation. This man, in his desperation, was willing to debase himself, to beg the help of this nobody that everybody is suddenly talking about. Maybe this Jesus can help. Of course, this man doesn't yet realise who Jesus is. Maybe Jesus has some special medicines that will heal his son. Maybe he's a special sort of doctor who can heal just by laying his hands on his son. It doesn't matter and he doesn't care how it happens. Just come on down before my son dies. Now we, of course, know who Jesus is. John has been telling us who Jesus is from the very first verse of this gospel. This Jesus is not just some miracle worker. This Jesus is God himself in the flesh. This is he who created everything out of nothing. In the beginning was the word, it tells us in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. That's why miracles come so easily to Jesus. He can create anything out of nothing. And he can grant life to anyone he wants with just a word. As this man is about to find out, Jesus' word alone is enough. He doesn't need to be present to perform his work. Jesus' word alone is enough to heal and to save. And thank God for that. If it wasn't, we'd all be in trouble. For where is Jesus now? He's in heaven with the Father. You might have noticed that we are not. Where are we? We're on earth, separated from his physical presence, and yet he is still able to heal us. He is still able to rescue us from our separation and our sin and our rebellion against God. He doesn't need to be physically present. Why then, I wonder, do we flock to see the next big thing on the Christian conference circuit? Why do we do pilgrimages to Reading, California, or to the Brownsville Revival, or to the Toronto blessing in years gone by? Is it that we don't believe that Jesus can work from a distance? Is it that we, like the Galileans, need to see it for ourselves before we will believe? Verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. But Jesus ignores this man's request to come down to Capernaum. He has something better in mind for this man. And strangely, the better that Jesus has in mind involves the lack of his presence. I wonder what the man's first reaction was when Jesus basically said to him, No, I'm not going to come down. Did he have a bolt of pain shoot through his heart? A shock of despair? of fear when Jesus said, go, instead of, yes, I'll come. It would be only natural if that were the case. But whatever his instant reaction was, he got over that in a heartbeat. He believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What a lesson there is in that for us. Jesus first rebukes everyone because they come looking to be wowed by an entertainer. They come hoping to see miracles before their eyes. And Jesus grants them nothing. But this man, his motivation is different. He wants a miracle too. But he wants one for an entirely different reason. He's not seeking to be entertained. He's after nothing less than the very life of his son. And that's why I believe Jesus granted him his desire. Jesus knows all people, John told us back at the end of chapter 2. He knows what is in us. And he will not be anyone's circus clown. But Jesus does respond to pain. He responds to need. He responds to suffering. It's just that he doesn't always respond in the ways we might hope for in the ways we expect or the ways we've asked for. So Jesus told the man, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So what's the lesson here for us? Just this. The word of Jesus is as good as his presence. No, in fact, the word of Jesus is better than his presence we will see next week when we get to John chapter 5 that Jesus will perform the third miracle that John records. Only this time, he is present. He's physically present with dozens, maybe hundreds, of lame, blind, and disabled people. And he heals only one of them. And that one he heals with a word. In that miracle, Jesus doesn't pray for the victim. He doesn't teach him. He doesn't lay hands on him. He merely speaks a word. Rise. Get up. I'm not sure how much clearer the Holy Spirit can make this for us. The word of Jesus is sufficient. Coming back to our story. The official didn't receive what he expected. He received more, much more. The story doesn't tell us why he responded with such faith, why he believed the word that Jesus spoke and then went on his way. Maybe it was the way that Jesus spoke with such authority, such certainty. Not very many chapters on from here in John's Gospel, the Pharisees will send some men to arrest Jesus. They come back empty-handed with the excuse, no man ever spoke like this man. Or later again, they send tough battle-hardened soldiers to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, to bring him to trial and to sentence him to crucifixion. Jesus asked them there, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus speaks, he's not vague. He's not wishy-washy. He's not hoping to convince you that he's right. He speaks with authority. He commands. He demands. You may choose to ignore him, doubt him, or reject him, but you do that at your peril. For he has both the power and the authority to get his way. And you better believe that when Jesus speaks, He is speaking truth, and his word will be done. Maybe that's why this man who moments before was begging for his son's life now believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Note the contrast between this man who believed the word that Jesus spoke to him with the rest of the Galileans who would not believe unless they saw signs and wonders. And there is the proof that this man trusted Jesus implicitly. He went on his way. He didn't beg anymore. Jesus spoke and that was it. The man believed. Just like the Samaritans, he didn't demand a sign. He didn't insist any longer that Jesus come down with him. He took Jesus at his word. In verse 51, as he was going down, he was returning home. It's not until now that we learn the timeline of this healing. The man heads back home and on the way he meets his servants coming to tell him the good news that his son lives. When he asks about the time the fever left his little boy, the servants tell him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. The seventh hour. By Jewish reckoning, The seventh hour is about 1pm. So Jesus heals his son at a distance and without ever seeing the little boy in the early afternoon. And the father knew that 1pm was exactly when Jesus had told him his son will live. But did you notice that it was yesterday? Wait up, this man is desperate. He's so distraught about his sick child that he travels 30 kilometres up steep hills to beg this man who is never met to come and heal his son. Then when Jesus says, your son will live, what does he do? Does he rush home to see his boy, to check up on him? After all, if he is in his chariot, he could be there by 3 or 4 p.m. Even if he is on foot, he could be home by early evening. Instead, he goes about his business for the rest of the day, and he stays overnight in Cana, not heading home until sometime late the next afternoon. What faith in the simple word of Jesus. Now, the text never makes any comment about the strength of this man's faith, unlike the Roman centurion in Luke's Gospel, who's Servant was paralysed and suffering greatly. The servant too, the centurion too, sorry, was granted his wish at a distance. And Jesus comments about the centurion, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So John reports Jesus' praise of the centurion's faith, but he makes no comment about this man's faith. But this man's actions speak louder than his words. He believed Jesus so completely that he felt no need to rush home to check on his son. And his first question to his servants is not, how is my son? But what time did he get better? He knew his son was healed because Jesus said so. He just wanted confirmation of the timing. Now that we would have such faith that we would take Jesus at his word, that we would read our Bibles, and believe what is written there. Oh, that we would take these words for what they are, the very words of God. For that's how Jesus speaks to us now. Hebrews 1.1 tells us, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. For faith comes by hearing, it tells us in Romans chapter 10, and hearing by the word of Christ. And faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The words of our Bibles are precious. The word of Christ is contained within the pages of the Bible. And those words are life-changing and life-saving. This miracle that Jesus performed essentially in secret, for no one in Cana knew that it occurred, the Father only had it confirmed the next day, is the second sign that Jesus did in Galilee. And the second sign is again done on the quiet. The fact that Jesus refused to take his physical presence down to Capernaum actually provided the context for this man's faith to operate. I wonder how often that might be the case for us. How often do we not get what we first asked for? And then how often do we respond with renewed faith? Renewed and increased faith, maybe because we've learned to trust our Lord's answer, even when that answer seems to be no. For faith must be founded on the answer that our Lord gives. Whether we like the answer or not is not the issue. And faith is a growing thing. We see it in this official, who at the start of the story came in desperation, hoping for a miracle. Then he takes Jesus at his word, and then he believes. We saw a similar growth in faith in the woman at the well. For her, the progression developed from seeing Jesus as just another Jew to maybe being greater than Father Jacob and then a prophet until she finally recognizes him as the Christ, the Messiah. Faith is a living, growing thing. Faith is never stagnant. Faith is never just a one-time event sometime in the past. And faith grows when we delve into the words of God, into the Bible. And in this man we see the end result of his growing faith. More than just taking Jesus at his word, he and his whole household believed. That's the purpose of John's whole gospel, that you would read about this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that you would believe. John opened this gospel saying that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, Such as this man, such as the Samaritans, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's John's focus all the way through. It's the reason he carefully selected each story he tells. It's the reason he carefully selected the handful of miracles that he relates So the fact that the first two miracles that John documents are both performed out of sight, I think is significant. Remember when he turned water into wine? The only people he knew were the servants serving the wine. And now he heals the man's child, and no one is there to witness it. The servants back home don't know what happened. They only know that the boy suddenly gets well. That all tells me something about the value of miracles in stirring genuine, saving faith. After all, if miracles were that important and valuable in stirring genuine faith in Christ, you would expect that Jesus would want to draw attention to it every time he healed someone. You would expect that John would record hundreds of them instead of only seven. In contrast, what we see right throughout all four Gospels is that miracles have limited value in producing faith within someone. Of all the uncountable numbers of miracles that Jesus did during his three or so years of ministry, he ended up only with a handful of followers, and most of those cowered in fear and nearly drowned in despair when Jesus was executed. Jesus even makes it clear that raising someone from the dead won't necessarily cause a person to believe. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, who both died. The rich man in his torment begged for Lazarus to be sent back from the dead to warn his brothers. The story is in Luke chapter 16, verse 27. You'll notice Abraham's reply. The rich man says, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And Moses and the prophets is the Jewish equivalent of our Bible. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. There's another Lazarus, Jesus' close friend who Jesus did raise from the dead. This Lazarus has been dead for four days. And this story is actually another of the seven signs that John chose when he was writing this gospel. But when Jesus raised this Lazarus from the dead, what was the result? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. I wonder if these were many of the Jews that abandoned Jesus at his crucifixion. But many believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This miracle of raising someone from the dead caused some to believe and it caused others to turn against Jesus. Some went and dubbed Jesus into the Pharisees, and John tells us that from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Surely if someone were to be raised from the dead, Especially after four days dead, everybody would believe. But scripture tells us the opposite is mostly true. Even the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself from the dead has failed to cause most people to believe. If we're counting on signs and wonders to bring our friends and our family to faith, we'll likely be disappointed. For that is not what signs and wonders are designed to do. They're only meant to stir an appetite in us for the one who is the source of these miracles and to open our ears to hear what he has to say so that we can be saved. And if we're depending on signs and wonders to boost our own faith, then we may not have the sort of faith that will survive tough times like the ones we live in at the moment let alone the sort of faith that will sustain us to the end of our life. Now we need more. We need much more. We need the Word of God, for it is only the Word of God that can sustain faith. We need to settle in our hearts that the Word of God is true. And therefore, because it is true, we will believe it. Tell me, Really, what is it that we all need if we're to be saved from our sin, our rebellion, our separation from God? Is it signs and wonders? We see right through Scripture that that usually doesn't save people. Or is it God's word? Which one is it that's designed to bring about faith? Romans 1.16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And Paul also writes, the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. What to you is the word of God that we preach? Is it a stumbling block because it gets in the way of the signs that you hunger for? Or is it foolishness because you think you know better than God? I hope it's neither. I hope it's the very words of our Saviour Jesus Christ to you. I hope you have set your heart that the Bible is the most reliable word that you could ever hear. I hope the Scriptures are words from God that will shape your life, your outlook, your decisions, your beliefs. Because just as Jesus Christ is ever reliable and never changing, so too is his word. He never speaks flippantly. He never speaks casually. He never speaks deceptively. And just like this official whose anxiety evaporated at the words of Jesus, so can yours. Your worries, your fears, your burdens, your pains, your grief. It can all be taken away by a single word from Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Come to me. Come to him. Come to him for rest. Come to him for comfort. Come to him for healing. Come to him for strength. Come to him for release. Come to him for rescue. Come and he will give you rest. He guarantees it. If he said it, you can stake your life on it. You can stake your eternal life on it. For his word is sufficient. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that the word of Jesus Christ is reliable at all times, in every circumstance. We thank you that your word comforts us, Lord, heals us, Lord, guides us, directs us, corrects us, rebukes us even, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who speaks to us today through your word, that we are not abandoned to uh, to our ignorance and our rejection and our loneliness and our separation from you, but, Lord, that you have made a way through your word to reveal to us who Jesus Christ is, the saviour of the world, and through his word we can know who you are, Lord, And we can be saved, we can be rescued. Lord, we pray that you will write your words on our heart. We pray, Lord, that your word will increase our faith as we delve into it, Lord, as we read it for ourselves, as we meditate on it, as we absorb it, as we respond to it. Lord, would you build us in our faith, so that we can know that when you speak, Lord, it is true and we can trust you. And, Lord, we do trust you. We do trust you, Lord, because we know that you know best. You, Lord, who created all things, who created us, who know the heart of every person, you know what is best for each one of us, Lord, and we put our trust in you that you will guide us and lead us through every day of our life and keep us safe. And even those times, Lord, when your answer seems to be no or unclear to us or wait, we will continue to trust you, Lord, for we know the plans and purposes that you have for us, Lord, are for our good. We know that all that happens to us is for our benefit, Whether that seems good or bad at the time, Lord, it is for our benefit to conform us into the image of Christ. And I pray, Lord, for all those who maybe have not had their eyes opened to this knowledge of you, to this saving truth contained in your word. Would you by your Holy Spirit, Lord, open hearts, open minds to know you, to welcome you, Lord, to put trust in you would you bring salvation Lord to those who have been stumbling in the dark for so long would you bring them rescue and would you speak your words of truth to our families our friends our acquaintances our workmates all those Lord who need to learn who you are and to put their trust in you. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed these things to us in your word. We thank you that any one of us can go to your word and find them for ourselves, Lord, and you will speak to us through that. We thank you that you don't remain a hidden God. We thank you that you're a God who hears and who answers us in our desperation and in our delights, Lord. You hear us and you answer us. And we put our trust and our faith in you to keep us to the end until the day, Lord, when we meet you face to face. On that last day when the trumpets blow and, uh, Jesus, you gather all your people to yourself. We put our trust in you, Lord. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.